from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, the first five verses. I invite you to turn there. We'll read all five verses, but we'll focus upon verses 1, 2, and 3. Isaiah chapter 55, the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love to David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, enable us by your Holy Spirit to give due attention to your word this morning, and in giving a proper attention to it, to be illuminated in such a way that we understand and understand clearly the things that you would say to us. Open up our hearts and minds to understand how Jesus is preached in this passage, and the grace of the gospel is preached in this passage, and how these ancient words are words for us today. We would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, once again, I want to begin by uh, setting uh, this message in the context of what we've been doing this year. It comes out of John chapter 5, really, John chapter 5, where Jesus is addressing specifically the Jewish Pharisees, uh, the leaders of the Jews who were actually leading the people of Israel astray. And so Jesus was most often in conflict with uh, the Jewish leadership, and particularly the Pharisees. And so he comes to this point uh, in John chapter 5, verse 39, where he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet... You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then a little bit further on in the dialogue, verse 45, Jesus says again to them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, note two things. Jesus said that Moses wrote about him and further that all of the Old Testament scriptures were actually written about and testifying and witnessing to Christ. Jesus then taught his disciples where in the Old Testament scriptures they were to see the witness of his coming, that they were to understand his mission, uh, they were to see him as the Messiah, they were to recognize his status as the actual king of Israel. All of that in the Old Testament. 
And Jesus taught his disciples how to see this and how to understand this, how to interpret this, and then how to preach this. Now, in terms of our sermon theme this year, we have been looking at how the books of Moses, the first five books, have testified about Christ. We didn't cover everything that Moses has spoken of about Christ, but we certainly covered some of the significant high points that we find in the first five books. Now we're at a transition point. Now we're to go on to see the rest of the scriptures. And again, not everything that the Old Testament scriptures would say, but at least some of the significant passages which speak about Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, In order to continue this theme, Christ is the theme of all of the scriptures. The entire Bible testifies to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the entire Bible testifies to Christ. Specifically, our focus in the weeks ahead will be how God's story of Christ is found in the story of David and in the covenant that God made with David and how then, as prophecy develops after the time of David, the people of Israel were encouraged again and again to look to one who would come of the house and lineage of David to be the Messiah of Israel and to be the Savior of the world. Now, the vital point is to remember this. The Old Testament testifies about Christ. But if it testifies about Christ, it's also testifying about the gospel that came into the world with all of its clarity in Christ. That not only is Christ the theme of the Old Testament, but the good news of how God saves people is the theme of the Old Testament. And with that in mind, we can look upon this passage here this morning, the first three verses in particular. Here in these first three verses, we have the gospel. We have the good news. We have the manner in which God has brought salvation into this world. Now, to sum up what I want to say out of these three verses, we can state it this way. Apart from Christ... Every human life is misdirected and lost. Let me say that again. It's significant in this passage that what is being taught here is that apart from Christ, every human life is misdirected and lost. In response to that, only Christ gives life and life in the manner that God intended. And thirdly, the life that is given, that God gives in Christ, is offered freely. So those are the main ideas that we find in this passage. We find that it's speaking to how human life is lost and misdirected. We find in this passage that it's Christ who gives life. We find in this passage that God offers this life in Christ freely. The free offer of the gospel. Now, the way I want to look at this follows the course in the passage itself, where we find, first of all, God's invitation. Uh, God invites people with respect to what is truly life. Uh, Secondly, there's God's diagnosis. Uh, He's going to specify how human life is misdirected. 
And then thirdly, we're going to see God's promise, and that promise is of life that is everlasting, everlasting life to those who will come to him. Three very basic ideas. Uh, Three very simple ideas that outline what the gospel is all about. Three very simple ideas, but in their simplicity, they actually go to the heart of the matter of what this world so deeply needs. So first of all, we have God's invitation. We have this in verse 1. We have it in the second part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. God graciously invites people, and he invites people unto himself. So in verse 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2, second half, he says, Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. First half of verse 3. Incline your ear to me, and come to me, and hear that your soul may live. Now, what God is saying through Isaiah, first and foremost, needs to be understood in terms of the vertical and spiritual dimensions of life. Uh, It's not that God doesn't speak to the horizontal. It's very clear that God is concerned about how we live with respect to one another. But the Bible's message is that how we live with respect to other human beings can never be right and will never be right if we ignore the vertical, how we are first of all supposed to be related to him. And in this passage, all of these metaphors that we find here that are metaphors on the, on the horizontal aspects of life, all of these metaphors reflect a deeper reality, the spiritual reality of a relationship with God. So water, thirst, eating, buying wine, milk without money, without cost, uh, eating what is good to eat, delighting in rich food. All of these are metaphors of what is most basic, most fundamentally necessary about life, true life, so that, as it says in verse 3, that your soul may live. The concern here right away is to say it doesn't matter if you have enough regular food on the table. What you really and deeply and ultimately need is that which has to happen between you and God. Uh, What you thirst for, what you hunger for, uh, what will feed you, what will nourish you, all of these things are metaphorically representative of what it is to have a right relationship with God because only in that relationship do we have true life. Now, four things to observe in the invitation. The first would be the power of the invitation, which is to say four times we find the invitation come repeated by God. Come, 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 as well as other things like diligently listen to me. And the point is is that God is giving a powerfully strong invitation for people to come to him. We must never, ever forget this. 
that in the history of the world, the voice of God into this world has always been a voice of reconciliation, a voice that announces in this world, come unto me. Come, listen to me, hear my voice, and return to me. But also we have to recognize then the people who are invited. Specifically, the people who are invited are those who are thirsty and those who are destitute. In other words, the people who are specifically invited are those who recognize that they are poor in spirit. Those who do not recognize they are poor in spirit will hear the voice of God as though it were another language. I want you to think about that. In order to hear the voice of God in this world, human beings must understand that they have a hunger and a thirst for what God offers. And if they fail to understand what God offers, they will hear the offer of God as if it were another language that's unintelligible to them altogether. A, a way of putting this is Jesus said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will be the ones who are blessed by God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, are those who will be satisfied. The idea is that God's voice goes out into the, all the world. Who hears his voice? It is those who recognize they have a hunger and thirst that cannot be satisfied by any of the things of this world. Thirdly, the price of the invitation. Uh, what God says here is come and buy without cost. God says come empty-handed. Uh, what God has to offer spiritually hungry human beings does not require them to work for. It simply requires that they recognize their need. So there is no cost. The grace of God is offered freely to those who know that they hunger and thirst for the very thing that God offers. Fourth, there's a purpose in terms of the invitation. And it's to live truly. You know, the basic underlying truth that you find all throughout the Bible is something that we can express this way. Either you're alive or you're dead. It's a strict either or. If you don't have a relationship with God and Christ, you're actually dead. Which is to say that you don't have life, the kind of life that God first ordained for the human race uh, back in the Garden of Eden. You don't have the true kind of life. You don't have life that gives you everything that God designed life to be. If you don't have that relationship with God through Christ, you are, in fact, spiritually dead. 
And so the purpose of the invitation is to bring people from death to life. The purpose of the invitation is to have people come back to God who is himself life. Verse 3, the first part, God says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now in the New Testament, Jesus came and he came with the gospel mission. He came and expressed these same kinds of truths, especially we read of this in a number of places in the Gospel of John. I'll mention just two. In John chapter 10, where Jesus introduces himself as the good shepherd who comes to lay down his life for the sheep, he says this in verse 10. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says that he came to bring what? He came to bring life, life in all of its fullness and abundance. And then in John chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000, and then later gives what's called the, the bread of life discourse or the bread of life message, he has this to say, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus says that he is that life and the fullness of that life and the abundance of that life which God has promised in this invitation. Come unto me and truly live. And to truly live is to have Christ at the center of your life. Now, that's to remind us what the gospel message is all about. We often think about the gospel message as how we can be saved and not go to hell. Now, that's not untrue. The gospel message declares to us the way of salvation. But to look at it from the standpoint of the gospel is about how we escape the worst thing that can happen to us is really just to see a, a, only a small perspective on what God is really promising us in the gospel. The gospel is how we not only will escape the consequences of living separate from God now and forevermore, but the gospel is about how God gives to us the fullness of everything that life can possibly be, and he gives it to us in his Son. He gives us life that is life indeed. And it's something that he gives to us freely. It's something that we can't pay him for. It's something that comes to us by grace. All that you really need in order to embrace this life and to receive this life is to understand that you are thirsty and destitute. That you need what God offers in his son Christ. Now, the second thing that we have in this passage, uh, coming principally out of verse 2, is God's diagnosis of the human condition, the human predicament, the human problem that's addressed by the gospel. Uh, the nature of the human predicament is that people live misdirected lives. 
And that's what he says in verse 2. He says it in the term, God says it in, in the form of a question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Now that question can be recast in terms of a direct statement. We can say it this way. God says human beings live their lives even to utter exhaustion seeking to find happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction in all sorts of things which actually will leave them empty. Things which will never truly satisfy. The book of Ecclesiastes, people often say, I've read the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't understand why it's in the Bible. It is a book of, it just seems like, a, a little bit of God and a whole lot of pessimism. It, it paints a very, very, very bleak picture. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most profound books in all of Scripture. Because it's a book about a man who knew that God existed, but nevertheless lived a misdirected life. It's King Solomon's testimony of what it's like to recognize, yes, I recognize that God exists. Yes, I recognize there's a vertical dimension, but I'm going to choose to see if I can find everything that's significant about life on the horizontal. Solomon sets out in a misdirected fashion to see if he can find happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in all the kinds of things that one of the wealthiest men ever in history could ever pursue. So that's what that book is about. He sought satisfaction in wisdom and knowledge. He was wiser than anyone else, did not satisfy he plunged himself into pleasure. Pleasure didn't give him, give him what he wanted. He embarked on huge building projects, uh, houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and fruit orchards interspersed with, with pools of water. He acquired all manner of female slaves and male slaves to do all of the work that was needed. It wasn't enough. Solomon tells us that he acquired more wealth in terms of flocks and herds and gold and silver from all over the provinces that, that his kingdom was connected to. It didn't satisfy. He acquired singers to entertain his ear and hundreds of concubines to entertain his flesh. And he admits none of this, this uber extent of pleasure ever brought him happiness or satisfaction. None of the great achievements in Solomon's life brought him satisfaction. He was forced to this conclusion, which he begins the very book of Ecclesiastes with his conclusion. And he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Another translation captures the sense of the Hebrew word quite well also. Emptiness. Emptiness. All is emptiness. So early on in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon says as he recognizes that he came to hate 
life because of this. And he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So in none of these pursuits does Solomon find the very thing that he's hungering and thirsting for with respect to life because it was all on the horizontal. What was not in the mix of any of this was the pursuit of his relationship with God. He was spending his money for that which was not bread and his labor for that which could not satisfy. That's the problem with the human race. People pursue what does not bring them true satisfaction. What can't bring them true satisfaction and what can't give them true life. But this misguided direction has a cause that's given to us in Scripture and is given to us in the book of Isaiah. Why do people uh, direct their lives in this misguided fashion? Well, early on in the book of Isaiah, well, actually all the way through the book of Isaiah, we find the word blind being given again and again to describe the people of God in their condition. Some ten times the word blind is used. Uh, the people that Isaiah prophesies to, the people Isaiah prophesies about, they are blind. But why are they blind? Well, one of the beginning statements of Isaiah, the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 4, this pronouncement. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Now, the explanation for all of that they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, this is why people are blind, and this is why people misdirect their lives. When you are alienated from God, you can't really ultimately understand what life is all about. That's the Bible's message. You and I who understand these things, we see it all the time. We see it in, in, in the politics of the day. We see it in what is promoted as entertainment. We see it in the conflicts of the world. Again and again and again, we see what is it like to see people who are actually estranged from God. People who have forsaken the Lord. People who have despised God and His Word and the things of God. What does the world look like? It looks like the mess that we have all around us. Lives that are misguided. Now, do people not know what the answer really is? Well, to some extent they do. I'm dating myself here, but going way back five decades ago, Petula Clark was singing... What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Or listen to Karen Carpenter, or the Mamas and the Papas, or the Beach Boys. Again and again, some of the most significant themes about what would heal this world were sung about. But the problem is, if you don't think God has to be in the mix, 
you think somehow you can do this yourself. But it has never been possible for the human race to reform itself. The idea that there's progress in history is only half true. Civilization is better today than civilization 6,000 years ago in terms of the fact that we can have toilets and plumbing and electricity like nobody's business. And you can speak to a device in your home and it can open your windows and shut your windows and turn on your AC and shut down your AC and turn on your music and shut off your music and start your oven. But we have as much moral depravity among human beings today as we have ever had in the history of the human race. The idea of man's inhumanity against his fellow man. There has been no progress in the history of the world. We do not find human beings getting better. Because life is misdirected. Life is misguided. When people believe that they can find the meaning of life, satisfaction in life, happiness in life, and the accumulation of wealth or the establishment of power, or even in your family or even in your children, if you think that's where your happiness lies, you're going to find yourself ultimately missing true satisfaction. The good things in this world and the best things in this world can never ultimately satisfy apart from the life that is to be found in God. This is why God calls people back to himself. Now, what God calls people back to himself about is found in the second part of verse 3. It's the promise of everlasting life where God says, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Now the Jewish people, the audience who were paying attention to what Isaiah says here, would have recognized that this idea of the everlasting covenant and this idea of the sure and certain mercies and steadfast love to David was really a way of summarizing all of God's uh, relationship and working in the life of David, all of it. They would have recognized that God promised to David an everlasting covenant, and they would have recognized that God had dealt with David in a tremendous amount of mercy because we know the sad story about David's life, his adultery, his murder. And yet God was merciful to David in that awful time which David sinned so greatly against God. Now the covenantal promise that God made to David, it's given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16. Here's where God promises something to David that becomes so significant in, in the history of salvation. So God says to David, he's king over all Israel, when your days are fulfilled and when you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, one who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. 
If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Verse 15 is significant. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed him from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So the everlasting covenant that God makes with David is that David's throne will be an eternal throne and there will be someone sitting upon that throne for all eternity. And the Israelites understood that this promise was one of the most significant promises about the son of David, a son of David being the very Messiah of Israel, the king of the Jews. This promise was confirmed in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. He says it again. 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. David says, For God has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, to really understand what these Old Testament promises about Christ mean, we actually have to look to the New Testament and see how Jesus taught his own disciples to understand and to interpret and to proclaim these promises as the gospel message. So think again, 2 Samuel 7.15, where God said, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed him from before you. God is saying that his steadfast love and mercies were not going to be removed from David and David's dynasty or David's throne. And in fact, this reflected how God had dealt with David in David's own life. God had given to David a mercy that was never taken away. David had experienced a mercy and forgiveness from God that was never withdrawn from him. David had sinned so deeply against God, and yet God forgave him. So we come to the book of Romans, and we see how Jesus taught the Apostle Paul to understand the mercies that God had given to David. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Paul is writing about the gospel and how the gospel is a salvation without our works contributing, a salvation that is based upon our trusting in Christ and so Paul says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now Paul goes on to quote from Psalm 32, David's prayer of repentance. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The Apostle Paul is saying that the mercies that were shown to David were the mercies of the gospel. 
David's faith is the very instrument through which God forgave David his sin. David's faith brought forgiveness of sin. David trusted, and that brought the forgiveness of sin. God credited David with righteousness, and God covered all of David's sin because David was trusting in the one that God brought into the world, even David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus. We can also look then to the book of Acts and see not only that the mercies of the everlasting covenant with David involve these gospel graces of forgiveness of sin and being made right with God, but another element of the gospel story that you and I would probably miss if it were not for the fact that the Apostle Paul learned from Jesus how to interpret these passages. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 34 to 39, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Asia Minor, in the city of Antioch. He's preaching in the synagogues to Jews and to Gentiles who are God-fearers. He's preaching the Old Testament story of Christ. And talking about Christ, he comes to this point where having said that they crucified the one that God had sent into the world. Verse 34. And as for the fact that God raised Christ from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, meaning God has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Paul is now quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 3. Second part of verse 3. I will give you the sure blessings of David. And then he goes on to say, Therefore he also says in another psalm, which is Psalm 16, you will, not let the whole, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So what did Jesus teach his apostles to recognize in Isaiah 53, 55 in that passage? Not only the forgiveness of sins, not only justification by faith rather than by works, but also the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You see, because the covenant is an everlasting covenant. Because God's call is to true life, it's an everlasting life that even guarantees the resurrection which is to come. Now, what's most important for us to remember this morning? First, every human life is misdirected and lost apart from Christ. When human beings seek their fulfillment 
on the horizontal. When they seek their ultimate satisfaction and happiness in the things of this life, they will fail. And many will believe that life is empty, that there's nothing but vanity, that there's no point to living. This can happen to us as Christians. Which is to say that we can drift like Solomon. We can become misdirected. We can focus on the things of this life. We can seek happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in our jobs, in our children, in our families, in the pursuit of wealth and careers, whatever. We can become misdirected toward the horizontal. And when we do, life will seem to have no purpose. Life will seem to have no great reason for existing. When we focus on the horizontal, we will, in fact, not be able to see how our own personal story fits into God's greater story. So, we must remember, only Christ gives the life, the true life that God intended. That's why we must keep Christ first. Always first. It's why Christ must be a rock. We must anchor ourselves to him. Only then will we really have the authenticity as believers to be able to share with others that God gives true life and he gives it freely to all those who hunger and thirst. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to trust in your Son. Help us to find our life in your Son. Uh, keep us, we would pray, from our lives being misdirected. Uh, keep us from trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world only. Help us, Father, to stay focused on your Son and the abundance of life in Him. In His name.